You can't exist in the crypto art ecosystem for very long before you start to internalize the very many cries for legitimization. I remember hearing Sarah Zucker, one of the true legends of crypto art, decrying years ago about the lack of critical analysis, scholarship, and discourse within crypto art about crypto art. She said something along the lines of, if we can't examine this movement, it will never gain legitimacy. We all believe it has. Man, I felt that. A few years ago, I self-published my first novel, and one of the first reviewers offhandedly called it a young adult novel. And I was like, young adult? This is a serious-ass book, and I put a serious amount of time into making it so. That comment felt extremely reductive, to be left out of so-called real literature. Now, exaggerate that a hundred times, and you can approximate what so many crypto artists must feel. They have their deep and detailed practices, their technical brilliance, their conceptual panache, and yet struggle to gain acceptance outside of the niche. Many have since recognized the sentiment, fortunately, and the level of critical discourse is much higher than it was even a few years ago. A bolstering presence in that arena of late is Emlo, who you may know from his charming, smiling penguin profile picture on Twitter. He is a beacon of positivity, seemingly appearing on every thread, complimenting every artwork, displaying a boisterous love for crypto art that only gains fortitude when you consider that it's paired with dozens of interviews he's recorded with artists over these last months. Mocha Live has evolved into a kind of interview show itself, and so I was thrilled to have Emlo on to discuss his practice as an interviewer, as a social presence, as a contributor to crypto art's mission to establish itself as a real and real powerful art movement worthy of its place in the larger artistic continuum. Emlo was as much a pleasure to talk to as he is to watch in his videos or listen to in his interviews or see on social media. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Emlo on this week's Smoke Alive podcast. Good afternoon, everybody. It is 2.05 p.m. Eastern Standard Time here in Brooklyn, New York. My name is Max Cohen, and you are listening or streaming the Mocha Live podcast. Uh, today on the podcast, I have a very special guest. You may know him from his dozens of interviews with some of Crypto Arts OGs and pioneers and innovators. You may know him as the former NFT lead at Flow Carbon or from his work at Transient Labs. Uh, you may know his Jack Butcher Pudgy Penguin PFP that I see literally everywhere. Uh, our guest is em Emlo, and Emlo joins the show. Emlo, thank you so much for being here. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me, Max, and it's a pleasure to be here with Mocha. I've really been enjoying all my work with kind of interviewing artists and collectors. It was a pleasure to interview Colborn as one of my first interviews a while back, and I love kind of what I do, and it's been a pleasure curating alongside with different teams like Transient and Foundation, and it's been a real pleasure working in Web3. So thank you so much for having me today. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm excited. I get to talk to like somebody else who does interviews and like kind of talk to you about style and attitude and uh, methodology. Um, it's a new kind of conversation we're having this week. So before we get into talking more about like your interview style, I am really interested in just kind of your vibe in general. I mean, whether like, even if you just look at your PFP, it's like the smiling, adorable penguin, like you have this ceaselessly positive attitude. You're so present and you're so uh, effervescent in your praise for people's artworks and their projects. Um, and the space is oftentimes so doom and gloomy and it seems like it becomes more so 
every passing week. So like, how do you maintain that positivity, whether you're in interviews or whether just in your online persona? I mean, is that just who you are or is, does it take some kind of like real work? I mean, that's definitely who I am. It's been very easy for me to uplift other artists because I've seen that like when other artists helped me, it's been extraordinarily helpful and has helped me progress in my career. And I do whatever I can to use my platform to help uplift and help artists tell their stories. And I think that like, it's a very important time in the market right now to reflect on what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. And I think that like supporting artists should be at the forefront of everyone's minds because they're the core of what we do in like crypto art and we couldn't be doing this without the artists. So I think supporting them is really important, especially with like what's going on with royalties across the board and a lot of kind of platforms not necessarily honoring them and sales have been down on super rare sales have been down on OpenSea. It's, it's just been kind of difficult for a lot of artists. So I've been using my platform to help uplift them and it's been an incredible opportunity for me. There's a subset of people in crypto art who don't like actively make a ton of art and I'm maybe you do some kind of things on the side, but I, I know you primarily from your interviews, right. And kind of being this connective tissue between artists and the public or artists and like a greater audience. I came into crypto art through like a pretty like random channel. It was more just like, I knew someone was in the right place at the right time. And I kind of learned to love it from there and became so ingrained in it from there, from the, friendships and the connections I was making with artists and builders and such. So like, when did you first become interested in, in NFTs? And, and when did that, it, I mean, was it crypto art immediately? Was there like a transition from like crypto to crypto art or NFTs to crypto art? Like what's your origin story, man? Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's funny. I've been doing digital art since I was little. I apprenticed a photographer for like five years when I was, from like age 12 until age around 16, 17. And a big part of that was just learning both analog and digital photography and digital darkroom. And I mean, like I've always been interested in art and have done shows even like in lower school, middle school, not lower school, but like middle school and high school. Primarily I was involved in different shows and helped like behind the scenes with kind of not just curating, but with invitations and making sure different people are attending and things like that and set up and like inviting different artists to collaborate. And as I moved through middle school and high school, like digital art for me was very important. I got into crypto in around 2016, 2017. And I honestly wasn't focused at NFTs until around 2020. I was primarily like focused on crypto at the same time that I was doing digital art. And it didn't really click for me until like one day I was speaking to an artist who had kind of minted their NFTs on chain and was able to connect with different collectors that it made a lot more sense to me to start shifting my focus from crypto to NFTs. And I started buying NFTs on super rare, rareable, foundation open sea etc and like i just started getting into it a little bit more and i was doing a lot of things behind the scenes with regards to helping artists just connect with collectors and sell their art and 
I've worked with several artists as like project manager and helping them also like kind of transition from the physical traditional art world to Web3. I mean, you mentioned my work at Flow Carbon briefly. Um, I worked as the NFT lead there for around six months and helped them launch this flowers collection, which was an art collection of 203 one of one pieces that highlighted eight different artists that were all passionate about the environment. And the pieces were connected to carbon credits on chain. So you bought a piece of art and at the same time, you were able to offset carbon emissions from between a year and I offset my entire lifetime of <laughs> using these NFTs. So I, I really started kind of understanding that NFTs could be more than just art, could be more than just PFPs. You can actually use them for real world things like offsetting carbon um, and doing it at the same time of also supporting artists and kind of sharing art and collecting art. And I thought that while I was doing that, I was helping with create a lot of the content behind that campaign. And I felt such a connection to the arts as the curator as well. And after I finished working there, I started kind of working more closely with a few of the artists that were included in the collection and started by just like retweeting and being active in their discords and telegram chats, etc. But I got more to kind of being project manager and helping them on various things. And I got to noticing that there's a huge gap in the market for this type of content that's educational and that supports artists and helps up, uplift them and in a way that they're not necessarily being seen on the timeline in general. And I thought that like right now was a really interesting opportunity for me to just start talking to artists and seeing what works, what doesn't work and like help them share their stories. And it started with a few interviews with people like Colborn, Coldy, Mitchell F. Chan, et cetera. And it's moved on to a lot of other amazing, incredible artists like Jake Freed and Grant Yoon and um, I was speaking to Pindar Van Arman the other week and Max Osiris and, I mean, a lot of different artists from a lot of different fields, um, Andre O'Shea, Lindsay Burns, like a lot of these artists have been able to collect from and been able to interact with and help them share their stories. And it's been a really awesome opportunity for me. Yeah, I, you know, there was the, the now infamous Twitter spaces last week that Matt Cain was doing with... Uh, super rare. And that was really interesting because one of the things that he was mentioning in that Twitter spaces was the lack of like critical discourse that was being done by super rare to promote their rare pass drops. And he kept saying like things like interviews, things like essays, like it's so important. And, you know, you did a really great job just talking about like the list of all the people that you've spoken to. And I mean, that's just a fraction of the people and it's dozens and dozens of artists. I'm curious, like when you enter into these interviews, you know, what is it that you're trying to get at from these individuals? Um, like for me, when I have these conversations, I'm always trying to like kind of broaden the scope um, from somebody's individual work or somebody's individual path to something more generalized in terms of conversation. You focus a lot in the interviews of yours that I've seen on like the actual methods by which people are creating their art. But like, what are you trying to to discover from them? Is there something more than, is there some like, I don't know, 
heart of darkness you're trying to illuminate? So, I mean, there are definitely a few things that I'm trying to achieve from the interviews. And first off, thank you so much for appreciating them. And I appreciate all your love and comments and retweets. And I don't, it doesn't go unnoticed. And I think that these started as just conversations that I was recording and I was offering, because I'm a good writer, I went to NYU and I felt that like there was not enough written discourse or kind of video discourse or even audio discourse in the space regarding art, I thought that it was a nice kind of entry for me to actually share my passion of helping artists share their stories. So, I mean, a lot of this has just been me having conversations with artists. I honestly forget that they're even being recorded a lot of the times and it's just natural conversation. Um, and I mean, on the timeline, I've probably only released between five and 20 minutes of each interview. I have over an hour of most of the interviews that like 40 minutes of each have not been seen. So, I mean, a lot of the, the what's been shown on the timeline has just been like sound clips and kind of snippets that I think would get good engagement because I want to help the artists kind of whether they're struggling with sales or whether they're just like trying to share their message. I think like something so beautiful about crypto art is just being able to connect with people across the world. And I think it's been really, really incredible to meet all these different artists, whether that's in person. Like I went to David Henry Nobody studio the other week. I was at Brian Brinkman's studio a few weeks ago. Um, I met Ben Scar in person. And I, a lot of these IRL meetups have been really crucial as well for me just learning. And I mean, for me, I, I'm, I'm a student at NYU, also grad school at, at part-time right now, while I also work in Web3 and crypto art. So, I mean, I've been taking this also as like an educational opportunity for myself. And I thought that if I'm doing this for myself, I might as well share this with everyone else also and help them kind of learn as well. Because I think that, again, there's just not enough educational content. There's not enough intellectual content that actually like dives deep into these different techniques, different artists and their stories, what they're passionate about. I think also you mentioned the timelines, a lot of doom and gloom. I think for me, a lot of this has been to try to uplift the artists and to try to uplift the general Web3 community through these interviews. Do you find that there's like a big difference in your tact or how artists like respond to your questions and interviews and conversations when you're in person versus doing something like uh, we are like over like a video call? I mean, there's definitely a level of separation when you're doing something that's virtual versus when it's in person. I, I, I won't deny that like being in person is drastically different in the sense that like you also have the cameo moments and the off camera moments that you otherwise wouldn't get. You have those few seconds of conversations, few minutes of conversations that like you get to understand where that person is coming from in a way that like you may not be able to connect through uh, virtually. That said, I spend so much time online and so much time on my computer that like I also sometimes don't even notice that something is being done virtual versus in person. For me, I'm able to kind of separate the fact that it's being done through technology uh, rather than being in person. But like, obviously, I always am welcome to doing 
my interviews in person and like they're they're always like i think have different outcomes when it's in person versus when it's online the other thing i was going to say is that when it's in person i mean at least for brian and for david i've actually gotten to go and visit their studios and you get to see their props you get to see also their physical art collection and you get to see things that like you otherwise wouldn't necessarily see i mean like for Grant Yoon, for example, that was virtual, but I was able to pick out some things in his background and talk to him about like his record collection. And I thought that, that was really cool. And like, I'm not gonna discount the fact that like these conversations I've had virtually are far better than not having conversations at all. And like, I think these conversations need to be had. And a lot of these artists and collectors are extraordinarily busy people. so you have to budget their time as well. And doing something virtually is just much easier for them to budget than something that's in person. So I'm always mindful of the people that I'm speaking to. And I try to kind of be mindful of their time, be mindful of what they want to achieve out of the interview as well. I mean, there are definitely artists that have approached me to do interviews for them because they're not getting necessarily sales or there's not enough interviews about them or there is no interview about them. and they just want to share their story. And I think for that, like, it's been awesome for me to be able to use my platform to help kind of elevate these artists and help them share their stories. Years ago, I had done a favor for my grandmother and she had this paper mache wire dog. She collects like dog sculptures. And I had offered to bring one to Ridgewood in Queens uh, because that's where the artist studio was and it needed uh, a little bit of a touch up or it was broken in some respect. And it was the first time I had been in like an artist studio. It was like within this large warehouse and you step behind this like big metal door and there's just these giant sculptures and there's newspapers everywhere and it's completely cluttered. And this gentleman is walking through it with such um, confidence, right? You know, every messy desk has somebody who, has, there's a logic to every messy desk, I suppose you could say. And it was so kind of revealing to just see the scatterbrained process by which all of this art had actually emerged into. Um, the only interviews or not even interviews, but podcasts I've done that are in person or have been with Colborn um, just at, up at the church in upstate New York. And it's definitely something that lacks, right? You lose the the temperature, you lose that kind of background information that just comes comes from seeing someone's space right grant young's record collection is a great example like david henry nobody's studio even just watching that stream of yours like you can just see or watching the interview of yours rather you can see so much of the process and the personality just in like the props and the things that are hanging up and like the tenor of the space it's it's very fascinating it's something I'm, i'm envious for um i don't get to do many of those i'm always just in this small box in brooklyn but let's move on real quickly. So, you know, you keep mentioning that there's not enough critical or intelligent discourse in the space, and maybe that's just a symptom everywhere, right? There's just not enough intelligent or critical discourse, period. But there are a handful of people who do this, right? I do it, you do it. I don't know. I, I would be remiss to put a number on it, but it can't be more than a couple. There's a few. I mean, I'll, I'll give shout outs to them. Please. Because there are a few that I really like. Um, Monty has a great newsletter. Monty Report, yeah, for sure. I think Zeneca with Zen Academy. I spoke to him this morning. He's doing some great work late night. Leap has some great spaces that I love attending every day. And Right Click Save, the discourse there is is second to none. I mean, they do an incredible job of curating thought and and, and working with like artists and thinkers to 
really gave a discourse to this as well. So shout out to them as well. Eminent is an, a new up and coming kind of reporter in New York that also has been doing some awesome reporting. And I mean, there are a few that that really have kind of started standing out. I mean, even with regards to regular NFTs, I think whale.swoosh has been a great, been doing a great job with his threads and just like leading with regards to just educational content about the space. But again, I think a lot of times in general, a lot of people are focused only on like floor price and things like that. So I think that it's important to actually focus on other things besides the price of the goods, because at the end of the day, we're here for culture and not necessarily, at least I'm here more for culture than for like the money aspect. And I know there definitely are people that are here more for the money aspect and couldn't really give a shit about the art. <laughs> or the culture, so. I mean, you know, I'm glad you brought up that list of, of individuals and it's still so small, right? You know, a couple of dozen people at most are really engaging on a daily level with creating like intellectual content when really trying to like use these different avenues, whether it's podcasts, writings, platforms, et cetera, to uplift artists. And so naturally there's a lot of responsibility on all of our shoulders to continue that discourse in a way that's intelligent and also like provide different, an opportunity to be exposed to different perspectives from people all over the world, from different racial, ethnic backgrounds, gender identities, et cetera. And I'm curious, like when you think about that responsibility, like what is in your words or in your view, the responsibility that we have as the people who are interrogating this culture and analyzing the culture, like what is of prime importance when we go about doing our work? I mean, I think definitely being like above board about everything is important. Like I definitely have seen quote unquote reporters in the space that are just being paid under the table for different things. And like, I think that that could be frowned upon. I think that like, if you're getting an advertisement for a certain good or product or a certain kind of collection, you definitely need to kind of announce that that's something that you're doing and that it's a paid partnership. And I think something that's not disclosed in the space enough is like, when people are doing paid partnerships. So I think that that's really important as well. You know, it's the irony of the fact that like the space is built on transparency and yet so much of the discourse and how, what kind of discourse is being marketed or published or given lots of attention often has these kinds of like back channels. Um, would, what do you find to be lacking in the critical conversation? I mean, like, like what can we as, again, the interviewers, the analyzers, the interrogators of this culture be doing to uplift it? Like, and, and in what ways should we be trying to uplift it? I mean, I think it's important to have critical conversations, honest conversations, and just like in, approach the space with curiosity. I think everyone's experimenting. It's important to like not be critical in the sense of being judgmental, but being critical in the sense of actually analyzing what's going on, asking questions, being curious about why things work and how things work and why people do what they do and kind of sharing knowledge. I think it's very important that like if you have a skill or a certain kind of ability to get information out there, then it's not necessarily, I wouldn't say that you have to, but I think that it's a very interesting responsibility to take on yourself and that a special subset of the population is actually going to do, but the people that do it well, like are going to be successful in the future, I think.
you know, I've, I've taken a lot of different tacks myself with how I approach writing and um, content at the museum. When I first started, I was very interested in critical analysis of actual art pieces. And that shifted into more of a focus, like a critical focus on individual artists. And then after some months of doing that, I kind of turned my attention towards these more larger general issues, ebbs and flows of the space itself. Um, and it does seem like the space ebbs and flows in terms of like what it needs. And I think this focus on individuals is really important right now, especially as the longer this bear market goes on, there's a consolidation of people who are willing to continue to place time and energy and reputation in continuing their discourse, continuing like their artistic practice within this like very confined space. I'm curious, like, where do you think that the discourse will flow next? I mean, do you think that it's always going to be this important to talk about individual artists and kind of give the individual stories of the artists this much attention? Or do you think we're going to move into a place where some kind of a different method, methodology of discussion is necessary? It's very tough. It's a tough balance because like, on the one hand, I want to emphasize all the artists that I know and love and that I'm discovering and that I think deserve to be kind of shown that may not have their voices heard because in the traditional world, they're being gatekept or something else. And I think like for those people, it's really important to use our platforms to help uplift them. I think though that like, it's also important to not turn into like a Walmart of like content in terms of just like having so much content that it's not curated and it's not like done in a thoughtful way. I think that like curators and curators of content have important roles in being able to pick apart what's going on and pick what's important and put that all in conversation with each other. I think like even if you're looking at a place like Zero One, which has so many mints and I mean what they've gone over a hundred thousand mints or something like that, something very um impressive in terms of the amount, but at the same time probably less than five percent of those mints are like top artists, top collectors and like top pieces of art that you would really want to actually spend money on. And that's not a criticism of zero one at all. That's just an observation of like how most things work. You go on OpenSea, 95% of the stuff there, probably 99% of the stuff there is garbage on OpenSea. And that's just because for a long time, people were able to mint for free and were able to mint very cheaply using their gasless procedures. And like, I think it's important for people to start choosing what's important and kind of highlighting what they think is important. And I think a beautiful part about crypto art is that everyone has a voice and everyone can share their voice. And I mean, I've seen so many artists that are also curators and curators that are also artists and curators that do a ton of different things. I mean, what's really cool about the space is that people come from so many different industries. And I think it's cool to kind of show their different voices. It's a delicate balance though. You know, I know you mentioned like this Walmart of content kind of ideology. And this also makes me think of what was being discussed in this Matt Cain Twitter spaces last week, because I think that there was pushback on a lot of what he was saying from people who were defending super rare in this instance, because like it's a platform, right? And the platform needs to survive. And again, it is a delicate balance between like needing to just push out as much content as possible and also trying to like 
attain the eyeballs that are needed and the engagement that's needed to survive through, you know, however long this prolonged industry downward slope lasts. And so and maybe I'm being unfair in this qualification, but curation, while there's a constant call for it, I don't know if it's always rewarded with attention and engagement the way that we all want it to be. We all know it's important, but engaging in the actual curation process, whether that's like collectors who are seeking out new avenues for displaying their work or putting their work into different contexts, whether that's you know, just the average artist who is attending exhibitions or reaching out to curators or whether it's curators themselves, maybe there's just not enough of them who are confident in their abilities. It just seems like that's such a delicate line to walk, especially in this moment where glut and manyness seems so important just for continued survival. I don't know. I don't think glut and manyness is the recipe for survival. That's not how I go, but I think like if you're talking about in general, probably in the future, the average NFT cost is going to be very cheap. I don't think that like people are going to necessarily be paying the majority of people are going to be paying for a lot of money for the majority of NFTs. That said, artists that are critical with how they drop and release very strategically and are able to maintain a market and create a community around their work and create a conversation and dialogue around their work are in a different position. And separately, I'm talking about when the vast majority of NFTs are coming from brands and corporations as well, because NFTs at the same time are also marketing opportunities and you're able to kind of get into their wallets and get them get their attention that way. And it's a little bit different than if you were to, let's say, have someone not buy your NFT and just see it on the timeline. Being able to like gift them that piece and have them resonate with it is a, a very unique experience that like I think will be a cool part of the future. But like I think at the same time, you're always going to have these luxury, quote unquote, luxury NFTs that are kind of collectibles and art by top artists that have been dropping very strategically. Yeah, I want to just shift back to like interviewing, right? And your experiences and your methodologies, right? What, for me, when I come out of these podcasts and I feel like, hell yeah, rock that. This is an awesome conversation. It's one that went in a lot of directions that I couldn't have anticipated beforehand. Um, and also, you know, when I don't stutter and say um and like a lot, but that's neither here nor there. I'm curious, like when you leave these interviews or even midway through them, like, what are your markers? What are your signs that you're in the middle of like a really, really fundamentally sound and powerful interview? A lot of it has to do with what goes into it beforehand as well. I prepare many hours before each interview, like actually going in depth into the artist's work and understanding what their art means. And if it's a collector going into their collection and seeing maybe they have like an on cyber that I can go into and actually see their collection on the walls and get to interact with their pieces and actually see kind of how their mind works and then read different articles about them if there are some and like read their tweets and kind of get to know them that way so that when I come into the conversations, they're very fruitful because I've already put in the work of engaging with them online and actually kind of getting to know them a little bit better beforehand. So, I mean, 
yes, there are times where like I'm in the middle of a conversation and like maybe I think I hope this doesn't go on longer than however long because <laughs> I'm tired and like I've done three interviews that day or like I've done a whole day of work, then I've done interviews, then I have class or something like that. And like that could be difficult just from like a focus perspective. But like, thank God all my interviews have been really, really awesome. And I've been really blessed to meet all of these incredible artists and collectors. And I think that every conversation I've had so far has been very fruitful. And I think a big part of that has to do with preparation, honestly. Have you done three interviews in a day? That's an enormous amount of work. Uh, today, I did three interviews in a row. I did oh, wow. Zeneca, wow. Ryan Cooperman, and now you. Last but hopefully not least. Um, <laughs> Don't worry. I have a few more later today. I also have <laughs> Twitter space and other things as well probably two twitter spaces the grind um that's very impressive i don't know if i have the longevity for that i'm wondering like can you tell me i don't know a story from some of your interviews i'd love to know just like you know a wonderful or funny or heartening or etc story from somebody you interviewed if you have one off the top of mind i'm happy to share actually an experience with uh Ben Scar, this awesome photographer who's represented by AOTM and a few other really awesome projects he's done. We actually didn't record the conversation. I never did a write-up about it, but I noticed he was an NYU student as well. And I said, let's go get coffee and just talk about art. And like that was really, really interesting to me because he's someone that's much closer to my age than a lot of these other artists that are I see as mentors and like are a lot older than me or have a lot more experience than I do. Um, for me, that conversation was really interesting. I still see Ben as a mentor and there's a ton to learn from him, but I also see him a lot like a peer. And it was interesting to just have like a one-on-one -on -one conversation with someone that like goes to the same university as me, is in web three and like is experiencing what's going on on the day to day. I mean, and it was cool to talk to him about like the monuments game. And he, I don't know if you know, but he recently won one of the skulls of Lucy from the monuments game. And um, we spoke about that and he has a lot of really awesome projects coming up and I don't want to share too much because I'll probably do a write up about it soon. But I think that like meeting with a lot of these artists has, has given me a lot of perspective as well and has taught me what to look out for when I'm also creating art and when I'm collecting art as well and when I'm curating art as well. And I think that like being able to speak to artists about their work and going into their environments. I mean, I went to David Henry Nobody's studio the other week and I posted that video this morning. I think you said you, you mentioned that you watched it. Um, thank you for that, by the way. I really appreciate everyone that views my content. That was a really awesome experience because I, I got to see where the magic happens and I was able to see how he actually kind of creates all his art. And he makes these like physical processes before he actually creates his pieces. Like he sets everything up, he has props, he has different wigs and like the body spinner, right? Where he like, yeah, exactly. The, the contraptions that like spin and whir and. Exactly. And so, I mean, going there and talking to him was really interesting. And like, for me, that that conversation was a really fruitful one, because I just like learned a lot more about an OG artist that 
I think isn't getting enough attention and kind of the fact that we live in the same city, maybe not the same borough, but the same city. And that I was able to get to him by a quick subway ride and just like talk to him made me recognize that like, I need to take more advantage of the fact that I live in New York and that I'm able to meet with all these artists on, on a constant basis. And like, I'm meeting up with Jules. I don't know if you know him, Nice Day Jules, who's a really awesome artist that works both on, on Bitcoin and also on Ethereum. And like, just all these in-person meetings are really, really awesome. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, we've talked at length uh, previously in the podcast about just like the importance of like, not even conferences necessarily, but some kind of an event where people who exist predominantly to each other behind the screen can actually be there in person and see you know, the smiles and how tall somebody is and, and what their vibe is and how they dress and how they act and whether they're jittery or not. And it helps you get to know people. I mean, and it's just such more of a, a fruitful way. Those connections you make are so much more powerful. And that's obviously not breaking any new ground. But now this is kind of a leading question and maybe we can uh, end with this, but you know, without naming names, like, do you have any interview horror stories, whether of your own doing or of your interviewees doing? I'd love to know. Interview horror stories. I mean, it's not, it's not a horror story. I, I interviewed an artist and after the fact, the artist reached out to me and said that they actually wanted to have a more interactive interview and asked if I could meet with them again for the interview. And I happily complied um, because I felt that like it's an awesome experience to actually have the artist walk me through their art on screen. So it's not a horror story. It's just something that I noticed that like I would love to do in the future more is walk through different artists' collections with their art on screen because normally I'm doing it post-production and after the fact I'm putting it on screen. Um, sure. With, I mean, I'll, I'm happy to mention her name, Isla, because that was an amazing interview. Both were, and I'll probably release parts of the first meeting that we had that are not like repetitive from the second meeting with overlaying some art. But like, that was awesome because I got to go in depth with her twice. I wouldn't call it a horror story. I'd call that an awesome opportunity because I got to kind of learn more about her from two different conversations. I think when I think about this question, it's almost all things that I myself have done because I think like so many things in crypto art, you kind of teach yourself by doing, and there's not really any other way. And the first interviews I did, you know, when I was writing like my first piece back in January or pre preparing to release that in January of 2022, like I didn't know how to conduct an interview. I didn't know what kind of information I wanted. I didn't know how to do research in a way that was meaningful. It wasn't just surface level. I was so nervous and I would stutter step over my words and same thing with the podcast. You know, I go back and I watch with some kind of schadenfreude, some weird distant objective schadenfreude at like these first interviews and they feel very clunky. I don't really know what I want to say. They don't have a certain avenue of thought or goal that they want to explore. And uh, okay, actually the last question, but you know, in doing all these interviews, you know, there's no way to avoid getting better the more you do them. But like, what have you seen from yourself in terms of your ability to conduct these interviews and have fruitful interviews? Like, how have you developed as a, an interviewer through the course of, like I said, the many dozens of interviews that you've, you've done? I mean, I also have kind of learned which questions are like good questions to ask and how to just interact with these artists. And at this point, I feel very comfortable having conversation with 
artists ranging from an artist that's like less well known to the top artists in the world because I've had so many interviews and done so many conversations that it's not like worrisome to me anymore. And I think like I probably had some kind of nervousness at the beginning, but I've gotten over that like way past where I was when I started out. And like these interviews have also allowed me to develop as a content creator and have helped me kind of get my story out there as well. And like, it's been an awesome opportunity. And I thank all the artists and collectors that have blessed me with interviews and let me speak to them and given me their time and energy and allowed me to share their side of the story. Well, Emlo, I've taken up a lot of your time. Um, before we get out of here, I'm going to give you the floor. Tell the people where they can reach you. Tell the people what you're working on. Tell the people what they should be looking at. Yeah, I mean, so I'm going to be dropping a website very, very soon that's going to have all full-length interviews, hour-long plus, um, from the 30-plus artists and collectors that I've met with so far. Um, that'll be very shortly, and I'll have announcements about that very soon. Um, in the meantime, I have a Spaces Tomorrow that um, is hosted, co-hosted with Patrick Amadon that I'm really excited about, um, as well as, I mean, just follow me on Twitter. I'm very active there, 0 Um And it's probably in the post that you tagged me in originally, Max. So, I mean, thank you so much for having me. This was an amazing opportunity, and I loved speaking to you about art and my process and what I'm doing. And thank you so much for hosting this show every week and what you do at Mocha. It's really amazing what you guys are doing. Yeah, we're we're mutual we're mutual fans. But yeah, I, I appreciate that. Um, so that was Emlo. Um, if you liked our conversation, or I don't know, if for some reason you didn't like it, um, still subscribe to our podcast or follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We have a Substack at museumofcryptoart.substack.com. You can follow us at Museum of Crypto on Twitter. Once again, please follow Zero um, X Emlo on Twitter. I mean, the dude is working. I can't believe you were so eloquent after. Th- on your third interview of the day, I'd be a pile of mush and I had to have my second cup of coffee all the way through this interview, even to just get through my first. That's not a reflection of you. That's a reflection of me. Um, thank you everyone for being here with us and we will be back um, real soon with another Mocha podcast. Thanks so much. Thank you. Take care. This podcast was edited and produced by me, Max Cohen. It featured intro music by Julian Brangold and cold open music by Daypox. Thank you very much to Emlo for coming on. And thank you very much to all of you for listening. We'll see you again real soon on another Mocha podcast.